0: Right, well we've got uh, 2nd of John and 3rd of John, these two fascinating little little letters. Um, let's get straight in there then, 2nd of John verse 1, the elder unto the elect lady Now, this uh, the Greek word that's translated lady is not the usual word for lady, and it seems that it's a proper noun, uh, Kyria. that is the female version of kiriel, which is uh, quite a Common name in, uh, male name in, in Greek and Russian uh, Kiria, the elder unto the elect or the, the chosen Kiria and her children. I think the more I, I reflect on this the, it just seems to be quite straightforward that read the, the Greek text so that that 's what it means um, and it 's <coughs> really unfortunate that this uh, this translation lady has has appeared so the elder that 's John uh, unto the chosen Kyria and her children so in what sense was John her elder I would say that eldership in the New Testament is on the basis of having converted somebody you become their elder not because you've got more grey hairs than they have or because you're elder than them uh, in in years but because you uh, have converted them you've become their father or mother in the gospel so then John had converted this woman, Kyria. And he talks about her children. And I would understand uh, children to be converts, uh, spiritual children that have been brought forth by, uh, by the word of God, the, the gospel being, as <coughs> it were, the, uh, the, the power that, that brings forth, that, that uh, fertilizes, and it's us that are spreading that gospel and bringing forth children and trying to care for them. Paul talks about himself uh, as a nursing mother to those that that he'd converted, etc. So, the elder, that's John, he's writing to the chosen Kilia and to her children, to her converts. And it would seem that this is a female house church, because he talks in in verse... uh, uh, 10, if anyone comes to you uh, and brings, this, uh, brings not this teaching receive him not into your house and I don't think he means stand at the uh, stand at the door and don't let anyone cross the threshold into your apartment or into your, your house who doesn't uh, believe the right thing or whatever he's talking about don't have these people into your house church and house is used like that in, in a, number of, uh, a number of places in the New Testament and so, in verse 13, the children of your chosen sister greet you. I think that this is another female house church. He talks about thy, that's you singular, that is Kyria, um, your chosen sister, that's a, a, a friend of hers in the Lord, who's a female friend, um, who's also got children or converts. So he's saying that you should um, have these greetings from this other female house church. That's how I I read it. <coughs> and incidentally, going into detail in verse ten, when he says receive such a person not into your house, uh, that oikion, that house, is definitely feminine, whereas the other house churches that we read about in the, the New Testament. Are masculine. Um, For a few examples, um, Colossians 4, verse, uh, verse 15, where Paul says, uh, talking about the uh, Nymphos and the church that is in his house. So This is another um, house church, but the church there in the Nymphos' house is uh, the masculine. And so in Philemon, it talks about the the church in, in his house um, at the end of, of Romans, you've got another example Romans 16 um, <clears throat> verse 5 talking about uh, Priscilla and, and Aquila and salute the church masculine that is in their house so then there were house churches, but oddly enough here in Second John 10 the house there is uh, feminine. And so it, it seems to me that there were these house churches, and in this case here you've got two uh, f- female house churches, the one operated by Kyria and then the one f- who sends greetings to, uh, to Kyria's group that uh, John's aware of. Well of course the New Testament does speak of households run by women. Mary in, in Acts 12 verse 12 um, Lydia, I suppose, the, the most uh, well-known example in, in Act 16. So, if a woman who, for some reason, maybe through widowhood or inheritance or whatever, uh, for some strange reason was uh, running a household, uh, owning a household, that is the boss of the household with all the servants, slaves, etc., etc. underneath her, if she converted uh, to Christianity, then Uh, probably her whole household would also convert. And there have been uncovered um, a number of catacombs, particularly around around Rome, where there are frescoes on the walls, that is, Christian paintings, doodles, cartoons, quite detailed pictures of the relating to uh, early Christianity. And some of those pictures, those frescoes, are definitely of female house churches. It's been observed. Why, in some of those pictures, are they all women? Um, There's one fresco um, where it's clearly in quite a wealthy home, and there are some wealthy women in the audience but the woman who uh, in the in the group um, sitting around a table but the woman who's holding the cup of wine that's inscribed Nobis, that is for us um, she's the one who's holding that uh, distributing the um, the bread etc as if she's running the meeting and she's dressed up as a slave so th- <coughs> This would have uh, been absolutely radical, and the whole idea of, in the first century, male and female, slave and free, being united, being one, Jew and Gentile, um, this has been described by the critics of Christianity as a sociological impossibility, and indeed it was. But the whole wonderful idea of the Gospel is that all those different groups can be united, and it seems that, in, in the first century, that Christianity got off to a good start, and it was like that. And so the idea of uh, female house churches, groups of women, uh, converted by women, meeting independently, uh, this was, uh, would have been a, an amazing idea within the very limited frames uh, and worldviews of first century Mediterranean society. I think that's why the critics of Christianity complain or ridicule it in the first century as mainly a woman's religion. In other words, it spread so rapidly, but it was mainly amongst women. You can understand it because they were given meaning in in life. And so, of course, it is today in a different sort of way that those sectors of society um, who don't have meaning uh, and that, in a sense, is all of us. That that can be the wealthy business executive who, in some sense, does not have meaning as a person, as, as a person, uh, who is just seen as, you know, a bunch of banknotes on two legs by maybe his wife, his kids, um, society, etc., etc. Man's search for meaning is, is, is Uh And increasingly, I think, the, the answers aren't being come up with. So those people, and society is full of it, and to some extent it's you and me, um, we also are called to find a radical sense of meaning in human life. So then, those uh, house churches of, of women, um, I, I think are a wonderful thing to study. If you look at my book on the early church, you, you'll see a few um, uh, chapters on, on this. <coughs> and um, Anyway, John is writing to this, this group. He'd converted, I suggest, this woman, Kiria, translated poorly in the AV as the lady, uh, Kiria, uh, who in her turn converted people, her children, and he's writing, writing to them. And he talks all the time in his letters, as you know, about the truth, whom I love in the truth, verse two, for the truth's sake, which abideth in us, and shall be with us forever, etc., now, exactly what he means by the truth, I don't know. I suspect he does not quite mean what perhaps we do by that term, but this is a, a set of doctrines, of theological propositions. It was John who recorded the Lord Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I wonder if it's kind of John's equivalent of how Paul is always talking about being in Christ and John talks about the truth I, I wonder if it's the same sort of idea whatever it is um, I think that the point he's making here is that Jesus as a person and our common relationship to him and in him creates the, the unique bonds that there are within Christian relationships as, as it was here between John and, uh, and this woman Kiria between her and her her children, her house church that she'd, uh, she'd converted and he says that he has no greater joy um, that 's in the third of John three. Um, he has no greater joy than to hear that his children walk in the truth, and uh, you 've got it again here in verse four of the second of John. I rejoice greatly that I found certain of your children walking in truth. So then his joy was that his converts and his converts converts were strong spiritually and you got the same really Paul puts it in a slightly different way in the first of Thessalonians where he says that his eternal joy and crown of rejoicing will be his brothers and sisters and so if we're in this world and and in relationship with Jesus only for ourselves thinking all the time about me getting into the kingdom we're to be honest we're, we're missing I think the whole point if we're here for God's glory and we're here to love and we're here to care and we're here to reflect the grace that we have been shown then we're going to be living lives of care of kindness of commitment to other people trying to build others up our brothers and sisters preaching the gospel to the unbelievers uh, to the end that they might come to be in God's kingdom and as and when and if they get there, they will forever and ever and ever be our crown of rejoicing and that's why the more effort we expend for people in this life insofar as it all works out and those that we try to care for will eternally be in God's kingdom, uh, partly thanks to uh, our doing our, our effort with them, then we will rejoice them more forever and ever and ever, because they are there and so that joy that we will have then in a sense begins in this life because as we see people responding to what we try to do for them and it's not just about preaching, this is about um, caring for people uh, to help them to reach the kingdom. As you see them walking in truth as John puts it this will be our joy, he says in the third of John 3, the greatest joy. And yet, you notice that I, I was I reading the RV there in of John when I read uh, verse 4 I have found certain of thy children walking in truth. I rejoice greatly because of this. The King James says, I rejoice greatly uh, that I found of thy children. And the idea definitely is I found some of them. So this is a case of the glass half full or half empty. And John looks at it positively. Of course, the effort we make for others often does not work out. You can try for somebody for years and it seems they've responded and they turn around and throw it all away and clear off. Um, that's how it is. And who knows, they may or may not come to God's kingdom. Sadly, some, it seems, will not. But they don't wish to be there anymore. Uh, so I suppose they, they shan't be. But, um, okay, that's how it is. And yet John focuses on the, on the positive, on the glass half full rather than half empty and says, look, I, some of your converts I found walking in the truth and I am just so thrilled about that and he says, verse 5, now I beseech you um, lady, I beseech you, Kidio. Not as though I'm writing anything new to you, but just repeating what we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Uh, He could be saying, I'm just telling you that the message to love one another was right at the beginning of the gospel that I preached to you. When I first met you, you know, standing in a bus stop or whatever it was, uh, when I first contacted you, when you contacted me or we first spoke about the gospel in the beginning my first point to you was that it's all about love loving one another now why doesn't he just leave it at love why does he say love one another I mean he's writing to believers and I think he's alluding to what he himself recorded in in the Lord's uh, great prayer in John 17 that Christian love for one another is to be the witness to the world and he's reminding her of this. And he says, I'm not telling you anything else. Uh, another way to read this is to focus on the word beginning, and it's this word, Arce, uh, as in the sort of word you get in Archbishop, or Arch Enemy, or, in other words, the most important thing. So if you read it like that, I'm telling you, he's saying uh, nothing new, but just the arche, the most important thing in the beginning. Um, that we love one another that we as believers are commanded to have a special kind of love for one another that will be so unusual and so powerful that it can convert the, the whole world so you could deduce from that that Kiria and her converts needed to be reminded of the need to love one another and it's rather the same with Ephesus, when Jesus writes to the church there um, <clears throat> in Revelation 2, he says I have somewhat against you because you left your first love, your first agape although he said you did great job driving out the false teachers you're very zealous, uh, all the rest of it, but you lost your first agape so putting Ephesus together and Kirio and her little house group together it seems Likely that as time goes on, Christian communities are tempted to lose that first love that characterized their, them at their first conversion. That is, I think, so true. When you're first baptized, you are, I think, impressed with the wonder of it all. And the idea of thinking or saying or writing hard things, of excluding other brothers and sisters in Christ, just was not really on your agenda as you, as you climbed out of the water of baptism. But as time goes on, familiarity with the body of Christ breeds contempt, it seems to me. And we need this exhortation to go back to that softness, to that sensitivity that we should have had when we were first baptized. Uh, and to realize that life hardens people. It just does. Um, and yet we are to be to, to have that agape that self-sacrificial love of Christ for each other and to not let our overfamiliarity with each other uh, lead us into any kind of contempt and so says in verse 6 uh, this is love that we should walk after his commandments this is the commandment that you heard from the beginning and so you should walk in it what is the commandment? well, all through John's gospel um, in the record of the last discourses of, of Jesus the commandment that he gave us is that we should love one another quite as simple and straightforward as that in John's first letter the commandment is love this commandment, 1 John four twenty one. this commandment have we, that he who loves God, love his brother also, 1 John 3, verse 23 this is his commandment that we should love one another, even as he gave us commandment and of course that love is to love each other as he loved us so then <clears throat> he's emphasizing this need for love And he seems to be implying that Curio's group had started to forget that. The supremacy of love. And I don't believe that uh, any of us could confidently say that we don't need that reminder. That this is the bottom line. Of course, it sounds so simple that it's all about love. You know, we've heard all this. We know all this. um, And yes, yes, I know that. Yeah, and... um, but because it is so simple this is exactly the problem that the bottom line of the whole thing the beginning of the gospel is as if if we take the beginning uh, literally there he's saying um, when I first started teaching the gospel to you I told you that it's all about the bottom line the essence of it is that we if you believe this gospel this message I'm telling you have to live a life devoted to love now he he doesn't say well the first thing I told people was uh, you know one God or kingdom coming on the earth or or whatever he actually is saying here that uh, the thing right at the start of the gospel was that it's all about love now let's uh, put a little bit more meaning into words by going into verse 7 for a huge amount hinges upon that little word for Many deceivers are gone forth into the world uh, who confess not that Jesus Christ comes in the flesh. This is the deceiver, from the Antichrist. Now, you could read it, but, ah, yeah. John starts off by saying, come on, dear, come on, kiddie. um, let's have a bit more love, don't forget it, will you, dear? And then he starts saying, ah, yeah, and you know what? And there's this problem with these false teachers. They're, they're like a real bad lot deceivers, Antichrist, chuck them out, don't have them in the church, boot them out. That's how it could uh, come over. But there's this little word for in verse 7 at the beginning. Here he's talking about love in verse 6, and then, he, and then the need for it, the supremacy of it. And then he says, because there's a lot of people around who uh, don't think that Jesus Christ uh, is coming, who, who, sorry, who don't uh, confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Now I don't think that John here is talking about uh, he's sort of changing his, his, his tack, he has a few verses about love and then he says, And by the way, and watch out for the false teaching, for the false doctrine, for the false theology. I used to think that's what it was about, but um, I see that it's all linked. It's all there's a connection here. Between his talk about love and then Going straight on to say, because there's a lot of people around who don't confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. The belief that Jesus really was human, that he saddled with all our humanity, somehow was human. um, The end result of that is love. It really is and from that point of view to have a totally wrong view of Jesus to think that he was a, a comet or a phantom or uh, some kind of angel or whatever that was not really like us then what John is saying is the bottom line of the danger of that is that no love that is the whole purpose of if you like true doctrine of accurate understanding of Jesus that in the end it's whether it affects love or not, and if it doesn't, if it's just uh, a matter of interpretation, a matter of where well, you read it this way but I read it that way, well, it's neither here nor there. The bottom line is, with all these things, theological things, if you like, doctrinal things, somewhat, somewhat uh, some put them. The bottom line is, what meaning does that have in practice? And, and that's the whole point of what you might call doctrine. It's the, the radical transformation of human life in practice. And if it doesn't, then what are we arguing about? Uh, I mean, really. And this is why he talks ab- about uh, th- th- this whole thing here um, in moral terms. He says in verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the teaching of Christ hath not God a lot of versions say whoever goes ahead but uh, it's the usual word for transgression I don't know why they don't leave it there I suppose because oh, it's a bit difficult to understand how holding a certain view about Jesus could be a transgression but that, that's uh, what it, it's the usual word for transgression again it's, uh, it's not talking I would say so much about intellectual failure it's talking about a moral failure and he says that such people are deceivers and that word definitely has a strong moral sense being an imposter, a seducer, knowingly misleading Then he says verse 11, don't uh, support these kind of people uh, because otherwise you will be uh, supporting their evil deeds now wait a minute since when since when has genuine misunderstanding of theology been a moral issue? If you read a set of scriptures one way and I read them another way, does that mean that I have quote "transgressed, that I have performed quote "evil deeds? Does that mean that I am a deceiver and an antichrist? Does that mean that I'm therefore not loving? not at all. If if I read a set of scripture and and come to a a wrong interpretation of it, what I'm calling intellectual failure, well that is a failure and it is significant but it's of a different category. Let me put it that way. It's it's of a different category to the person who is uh, committing transgression, evil deeds, deceit, etc. And so I want to make a suggestion to you here, in verse 7, he says, for, he's been on about the paramount importance of love, and he says, because, as many deceivers have gone forth into the world, who confess not Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. I wonder if that could be read as implying that there's a lot of people who aren't living out or confessing who are not living out Jesus in the flesh. In other words this is a warning about immoral people who are appearing as Christian but who are actually not. Rather than a warning about um, some sort of incipient uh, Trinitarianism, or some uh, clean flesh, or some whatever whatever wrong theologies there are out there. I'm not saying that those things are okay, don't get me wrong. I'm saying he, that I wonder whether uh, John really has those things in his mind. I don't think he does. I can't go into it now, but I think there's strong evidence that the whole New Testament was written well before AD 70, and that includes these letters that we're reading here. Well, John Carter and uh, the older sort of expositors talk about John fighting Gnosticism, but I, I don't really think that Gnosticism was much of a threat, not even in its kind of incipient form, in say the 80s, 60s, when maybe John was writing this. The bigger danger was from Judaist infiltrators trying to turn the grace of God, as it is in Jesus, back into legalism, taking away the love and the joy out of true Christianity that was the problem at this stage and so I think that he he starts the letter talking about love and the need to to hold on to the paramount importance of it and then he warns Kyria that there are people who have gone forth into the world now stop there that phrase that Greek phrase to go forth into the world you meet the very same phrase, the very same phrase in Hebrews 10 verse 5 that says that Christ A.V. entered into or went forth into the world. Hebrews 10 verse 5 if you're making notes. So then, these people appear to be like Jesus. But actually they are not confessing Jesus coming in the flesh in their lives they are not manifesting him they're not little Jesuses as they should be but they appear to be they go forth into the world just as Jesus went forth into the world Hebrews 10.5 and that's why John calls them in verse 7 Antichrist now the Greek word translated anti, or well, the Greek word anti um, so that's all it is uh, does not mean not in New Testament Greek does not mean against that's how we tend to use it in, in, in English uh, now it doesn't mean against it really means uh, as an opposed to it really means uh, appearing as so then an anti-Christ is kind of a fake Christ Uh, Someone who appears as somebody else. They look on the outside like that person, but actually it's not that person. That's who an anti-person was. Anti-Christ was not someone opposed to Jesus. It was someone who was in the place of Jesus. I think that would be the right translation of anti, uh, in the place of. So, these people went forth into the world, just as Jesus did. They appeared like Jesus, but actually they did not confess Jesus coming in the flesh, that is, in their flesh. Their human lives were not a manifestation of Jesus. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. And so <clears throat> they appeared uh, to be Christian. The whole thing had a semblance of, of, um, <clears throat> of the real thing, but actually it was not. And uh, <clears throat> here I think really we are right up against a huge challenge to us. Because what version of Christianity are you and I living? It's very easy to appear to be the real thing. But what he's saying here, as I understand it, is that if you are not living the life where in love for your brethren is paramount, where that is the beginning, the arche, the beginning of your faith, of the structuring of all your relationships, then you're just appearing. But you're not really the real thing. When he says, uh, John says, such a person, uh, verse nine, hath not God. Uh, it's a clear allusion to what he's recorded in John five verse forty-two, where Jesus says to the Jews, "You have not the love of God." So, you have not God here in verse nine. Very similar, to say, John five forty-two, you don't have the love of God. So God. Having God, what does this mean? There's no love. So therefore, you haven't got God. And when he talks here about not having God, um, it's very similar to to how Paul puts it in Romans 8 verse 9. He's talking about Jesus in Romans, uh, not uh, God. Uh, But he says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And I think that's why... John is using here this moral language that whoever is like that is transgressing, verse 9 if you support such a person uh, verse uh, 11 you are sharing in their evil works so then the bottom line is love otherwise it is all empty And so he says in verse 8, Look to yourselves, that we, that is John, his kind of pastoral preaching team, that we don't lose the things that we worked for, but that we receive a full reward. I think he's saying that if you fall away, after all the effort we've made for you, well, as Paul puts it, 1 Corinthians 3.15, we can build wood, high and stubble, and if the people we work for in this life don't make it into the kingdom and they are burnt up in the last day, well we ourselves shall be saved, yet so as through fire and so he's saying the reward that we would have got for you, as it were uh, will be wasted, we won't get it, if you turn away now in the parable in one sense we all get a penny a day salvation is by grace and yet the, the reward ten cities five cities different amounts of money Uh, that we're given one star shining brighter than another. All that, I think, is a reflection of how we have lived in this life and the spiritual care that we have shown to other people. And that's why, John says, if you let yourself be be taken up with all this other stuff so that you lose love and you, you turn away, uh, and you stop confessing Jesus in your flesh, in your daily life in your earthly, normal human life um, and if you just end up living a sham of Christianity an anti-Christ existence then he, he says all our work will have been in vain and we will lose, the re- we as in John and his uh, preachers we will lose the reward that we could have had for, for your work for your uh, your transformation for you being in the kingdom and so this really is a uh, a challenge is it not to have love as the absolute bottom line now in third of John you've got exactly the same sort of thing it's a pretty similar letter he's written to this uh, sister Kyria there in 2nd of John and here in 3rd of John the elder now writing to another named individual uh, Gaius incidentally he says verse 1, the elder, John unto the well beloved Gaius, well beloved by whom I suggest the beloved by whom it's by God or, or Jesus like John in his Gospel, talks about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, as the beloved one. And uh, I think he's sort of alluding to that and telling Gaius, look, Jesus really loved me, and he really loves you. And then he says in verse 1, whom I love in the truth. So he's saying, God loves you, and I love you. And this is exactly what he's been teaching in his first letter, what he's been recording the words of Jesus in in his gospel, that we are to love each other with the love wherewith God or Jesus have loved us. And so I think that verse 1 very uh, nicely sums all that up, where he says, you are beloved Gaius by God, and I also love you verse 2 I <clears throat> pray above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul and I understand that to mean your natural human life even as you're, you're getting on well in, in this life more than anything else he was worried about or concerned with his brother Gaius whom he had converted that's why he says I'm your elder um, he's worried about him uh, prospering spiritually Now, if this is the sort of life that we live, where the most important thing for us is our brother or sister's spiritual life and their spiritual growth, then life takes on a a somewhat different uh, complexion, because, quite frankly, we're no longer so selfish. The issue is always them, or him, or her, them over there, those down there, whatever. Whatever. And he says, You know, I rejoice greatly, verse 3, <clears throat> when the brethren came, and the Greek seems to imply keep on coming, and bear witness unto the fact that you're walking in the truth. So there's this group of people called the brethren who keep coming to John and telling him, Gaius is doing real good and he's walking in the truth. And. Uh, He says, um, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. So then Gaius was one of his converts, one of his spiritual children. And then he says, verse 5, The brothers are blessed by Gaius. Beloved, you're doing a faithful work in whatever you do to the brethren and to to strangers. Now, these are the brethren who keep coming to John and telling him that Gaius is doing well. They bear witness of your charity before the church, whom you bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, and you're doing well. Now, I understand it then that this group of people called the brethren were people who were were brethren who were, if you like, itinerant they were maybe missionaries travelling around and Gaius used to uh, look after them and he set them forward on their journey he he looked after them well and then they used to come back to John and bear witness before the church that's John's church in verse 6 of uh, what a good bloke Gaius was and how he's doing good Okay, let me read on John says you're doing well to to do this because for the sake of the name they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles they went forth I I think this might be an allusion to the the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel but for the sake of the name because of the greatness of Jesus the name and the fact because they'd been baptised themselves into that name this motivated them John is saying to go forth of the Gentile, uh, to, to go forth uh, taking nothing of the Gentiles. They went out preaching the gospel. They weren't interested in, in personal uh, financial gain, betterment, or whatever, just for the joy and the wonder of knowing the name of Jesus and, and His Father and all the things, of course, that just the wonder of His character. I mean, the name is essentially character. The the wonder of knowing Him. Men that they went out, not worrying about money, not worrying about whatever, but to take the message to the Gentiles and taking nothing of them. And so when they stopped by at Gaius's place and he sort of kitted them out a bit and set them forward on their journey, well, John says, that's a great thing that you're doing. And <clears throat> we ought to, verse 8, we ought to welcome or receive such and be fellow helpers, with the truth and fellow helpers syn-energos it's where the modern word synergy comes from energy together that uh, these guys are going out uh, these brethren are going out doing their thing preaching there's old John back in his home uh, ecclesia who'd converted them and there's Gaius I guess giving them some money giving them some food whenever they drop by at his place and John says this is being what the AV calls a fellow helper to the truth a syn ergos that this is synergy this whole thing comes together different people in different situations providing something different a synergy but verse 9 I wrote somewhat under the church but Diotrephes, who loveth out the preeminence among them receiveth us not so if I come that is to Gaius, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, his works which he does, prating against us with wicked words so why then was this Diotrephes so against Gaius, well I think John is saying look I wrote to your local ecclesia but you know you've got Diotrephes there and he does not receive us and if I come to see you I'll have it out with him That implies that Gaius and Diotrephes are living close to each other. And I would say then that um, (coughs) it says later on there in verse 9 that not content therewith neither does he himself receive the brethren that's the brethren that we've read about earlier in this letter uh, and forbids them that would and cast them out of the church. Uh, It seems to me that uh, when it says, Diotrephes will not receive the brethren, well, John has just commended Gaius for receiving the brethren. Verse 8, you did the right thing to receive such. Well done. Uh, verse 5, well done for what you did to the brethren. But Diotrephes, will not receive the brethren. When these itinerant preachers came to him, he would not receive them, and he forbids those who do receive them, and casts them, that is those who receive the brethren, out of the church. So then, Gaius was one who had received the brethren, and he'd been chucked out of the church. Isn't that interesting how God works? that this Gaius, who John is uh, saying is so useful and so wonderful, he was sort of on his own This guy was out on his own He'd uh, been in uh, church He had been converted personally by John He was one of John's children Spiritual children um, But he was in a church In Ecclesia With his diotrephes. And diotrephes said Nope, if you give support to those missionaries You can uh, get out the church And these visiting brethren came And Gaius said No, I'm going to support them they supported them, right? Out you go! Incredible that for doing a good deed such as supporting missionary work, um, somebody could get, as it were, excommunicated, disfellowshipped. Um, it's all very close to home in my own experience because this is exactly what what we went through, um, and I saw others go through it as well. But that's what it says here, and it's uh, it's amazing how nothing really has changed for 20 centuries. But the amazing thing is that God chose to work through this Gaius, this individual who, as far as we know, was out of fellowship, as Diotrephes would have said. Um, and God worked through him, and he was part of what John calls the uh, the synergy. He was, a, verse 8, a fellow helper to the truth. So the fact that your brethren might not think much of you and chuck you out of the church... Don't make any difference at all. You're still part of the synergy that's going on. And he says, um, Beloved, verse 11, he's talking to Gaius, Imitate not that which is evil. Mimic is that Greek word for follow or imitate. Don't mimic what is evil, but that which is good. He that does good is of God, but he that does evil has not seen God. Who's the one who does evil? He who does evil? Well, it's pretty clearly Diotrephes. He was the one who was doing the evil. And uh, John says to Gaius, don't mimic that which is evil. You might think, well, why would Gaius want to do that? Why would Gaius want to mimic what Diotrephes had done to him? Surely he would know that that was awful. And yet, thinking about it, no, John was quite right to point that out to Gaius, because the abused tend to abuse. This is a fact of life. That's how life goes. That people have suffered in some way, go and take it out on others. And that's, I think, what could have happened with Gaius he'd been excommunicated slandered this guy at Atrophies was coming out with a slander campaign, malicious words uh, etc against him and John is saying to Gaius, don't mimic that behaviour it's so easy to do, you've been treated like that and you go and treat someone else like that unless grace breaks that cycle it just is a downward spiral grace has got to break that spiral and he he says um, as I say verse 11 he that does good is of God but he that does evil and he's talking about diatrophies has not seen God now again we're getting back to what we we saw there in, in the second of John where he he says that people who don't have Christ as the absolute core of their lives uh, that love is not paramount for them, love of the brethren that they actually are an antichrist so I think it is with this Diotrephes. he thought he was defending the truth by kicking people out of fellowship who were doing missionary work Um, and yet he was actually doing evil and he had not seen God now I used to think that well, everyone in the, in our community, and the brotherhood are kind of sincere and okay, it's a bit of a shame that uh, people get this fellowship and there's arguments, what a shame uh, but you know kind of we're all sincere and we kind of all mean the best but you know doing this study on 2 John and 3, 3 John I uh, <laughs> I must admit I've rather change my view because it seems to me that if we're going to behave like this, if we are going to throw people out of the church if we're going to lose our first love if we are going to not be part of the synergy of God's truth that uh, John talks about here in verse 8 then we actually are doing evil we have not seen God, that is we have not known God when Jesus comes back, that category, he's going to say to them, "Look here, you're banging on the door, but I never knew you. I don't know who you are. Just go away." How about Jesus? Like, come on, don't you know us? No, I've never known you. I don't know who you are. And uh, the whole thing of uh, you know what we saw there in the Second of John, to be an antichrist, to be a fake Christ, to appear to be the real thing when actually. We're not confessing Jesus in our flesh. and We're all concerned about keeping other people out, exclusion, etc., etc. Now, this is sober stuff, because many of us, myself included, were raised in environments where we were taught, explicitly and implicitly by example, that the harsher the line you took against your brother the better it was if in doubt well you could say if in doubt kick him out uh, I admittedly never heard that said but it was very much if in doubt separate uh, this is absolutely wrong this is what he calls here evil and you can see how diatrophy started I, I would even argue that uh, if you look again at verse 10 that you've got Uh, A sort of a chronological account of the progression of his behavior Uh, prating against us with malicious words, that's how it started he started bad-mouthing John, and not content therewith neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church I suggest that those four things are chronological, he starts off bad-mouthing John I guess jealousy is is the usual thing, personality is usual stuff, and not content therewith. And that, I think, is a very uh, pregnant phrase, not content therewith. Once this sort of behavior starts, people can't stop it. Once you start on the road of exclusion, bad-mouthing, exaggerating, um, talking someone down, Uh, refusing fellowship to somebody you're never content therewith it has to go further and that's what he did he would not receive the brethren that is these itinerant uh, missionary brethren I guess they looked a bit rough smelt a little bit strange Um, maybe spoke with an accent who was quite sure what they were teaching etc etc and then he, it says that he forbade or hindered those who uh, did receive them. So he kind of, you know, can you imagine how it is in church life. He started, you know, making pointed, barbed comments. Why are you having those smelly people in your house? What are you doing giving those people food? And then what did he do? He cast them out of the church. Those who uh, had, had supported those missionary brethren were disfellowshipped for doing that. All because verse nine, he loved to have the preeminence. He loved the preeminence. Paul has a lot to say about the preeminence of Jesus. In fact, Paul talks about the preeminence of Jesus in such strong terms that a lot of people misunderstand it and think he's saying that Jesus is God or Jesus existed before he was born or that kind of stuff. Um, and all Paul is trying to do is to get over the huge extent of his preeminence. And insofar as we grasp that on a personal level, we will not want to be putting ourselves up front all the time. And that was exactly Diotrephes' problem. And it's that desire for personal preeminence that leads to division, broken homes, broken churches, ecclesias, relationships, families etc. So then it's easy for us to read this stuff and say, Ah oh, yeah, oh I know people like that, isn't it terrible? And if that's how we are to close, then I will have failed to exhort you personally and exhort myself. Because the point is that this is every man. Each of us, you, me, each of us, we all have a terrible tendency to get insensitive as the years go by, to lose that first agape, as Ephesus did, to, to lose our first love. And we all have a, a tendency to be an anti-Christ, to appear the real thing, to go out into the world, just as Jesus went out into the world, Hebrews 10 verse 5, when actually we are not living out Jesus in the flesh, in the dirty business of daily life, We are not being him at all. Love is not the beginning and the end for us. And uh, we can be like diatrophies and actually be doing evil. Because we are basically jealous of somebody else now that's where we stop thinking about oh yeah I know brother so and so I knew this situation in this ecclesia or in that church, yeah, yeah 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 oh you know it was awful yes I don't doubt that for one bit but by way of exhortation we each of us need to look at ourselves and see the degree to which we have failed in those ways because fail we certainly have and are very sorely tempted to so let's get back to the human Jesus because Jesus came in the flesh we are to be Jesus in the flesh think of him think of his humanity and of his spirituality that shone through that humanity in the flesh that he was God manifest in flesh And the bottom line of thinking about him and a life focused upon the human Jesus is, in the very end, love. Thank you.